Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 66 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. On today's show, we talk to Ken Falk, veteran, founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, co-author of a recently released book, Struggle Well, and an advocate for veteran mental health and wellness. Ken and I have a great conversation about his background, his work, and the concept of post-traumatic growth. Here's a piece of what you'll hear in the show. After that, we'll have a short break with my buddy Eddie Lazary highlighting one of the sponsors of the Change Your POV podcast network, and then we'll get into the conversation. And he would sit in these groups and he kept listening and watching the growth occur and, and, and creating these, you know, what he showed eventually in research is these outcomes of, of post-traumatic growth. You know, post-traumatic or a traumatic event occurs, time goes on, you know, grieving, healing, and then this growth opportunity. And he started writing about it. And I said, you know, you're, I'm really intrigued by this. I said, have you ever done anything with, um, with veterans? Many veterans separate from the military and they want to stake their claim in this world. And hey, what better way to do that than to start your own website? Whether you want to create a blog or a niche site or a nonprofit, or hey, what about a full-blown online storefront? Well, you will want to host your site on a great platform at a reasonable price. We recommend HostGator. It's who we use here at Change Your POV Podcast Network. Web hosting made easy and affordable. Powerful website hosting services starting at only $2.75 a month. Check it out now by heading over to changeyourpov.com forward slash resources. And you know what? If you don't have any website development experience, no problem. You can get started quickly and easily today. HostGator offers a website builder that provides you with an incredibly convenient drag and drop building experience. You can choose from a wide selection of themes and even pre-built sections to craft your own amazing website and publish it in no time. So check it out today by heading over to changerpov.com forward slash resources. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to listen to and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, I'm really excited about today's guest, um, not uh, for many different reasons, but I've been uh, following his work and the work of uh, Boulder Crest Retreat for a while, and I'm really encouraged by it. Uh, but I'd like to introduce to the audience today, Ken Falk. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, Dwayne. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on. You know, absolutely. It's uh, it, like I'd mentioned uh, before we started talking, you're you're, uh, you're, you've been around for a while, but you really seem to be uh, hitting uh, a, a lot of things. You got a new book out, and uh, obviously Boulder Crest is doing some great things. But before we get into that, uh, I guess I'd like to have you tell the audience a little bit about your military background uh, and uh, sort of uh, where things started at. Yeah, sure. Well, I, my military background uh, started 
1981, I enlisted uh, in the Navy as an E-1 and uh, spent my first tour of duty in the Ceremonial Guard here in Washington, D.C., and that was a uh, amazing tour. Uh, over an 18-month period of time, I was um, stood at attention on the White House lawns and other major events, but uh, but also was a, a body bearer, a casket bearer, and uh, and participated in about 1,400 military funerals, uh, you know, from from dependents and spouses to uh, to four-star, you know, admirals and generals. So it was a great way to start my career. Um, the, the ceremonial guard um, led me to um, the EOD community. I, I enlisted um, and initially in the Navy to be a Navy SEAL. When I got to boot camp, I failed an eye test that was required. SEALs had to have uh, almost 20-20 vision, and I didn't. I had about 20-40 and 20-50 in the other eye. And At the time, they weren't doing LASIK surgery. So um, I found out about EOD when I was in Washington, D.C. The, the old dive school used to be up in Washington, D.C., and we had divers living on the same base that we were at Andrews Air Force Base and just got to got to know people. And Went and took the test down in Indian Head, Maryland, which is where the EOD school was at the time, and passed it. And, and next thing I know, I was on my way to EOD school. So I spent the rest of my career as, a, as an EOD tech. I retired as an E-9, a Master Chief uh, Petty Officer out of EOD Group 1 in San Diego, where I kind of spent the last three years of my career really focusing on the counterterrorism stuff that I had I'd spent the last half uh, of my career in supporting SEAL teams and Army Special Forces units as an EOD guy. And then this last tour in the Navy, I was able to really get focused in on uh, the requirements business, what we needed as a force to prepare for modern day warfare. And the timing couldn't have been any better in the sense that we were preparing for the terrorist fight, which hadn't started. We started in 1999 and then 2000, you know, with Cobar Towers and then the USS Cole. Um, so when the IEDs started going off in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the expertise that I had gathered became pretty valuable to, to the counter-IED community as well. You know, that's a, it's a pretty broad range. It, it always fascinates me when I talk to veterans um, that, that really straddle eras. Um, it, when you came in in 81, um, there were still Vietnam veterans. Uh, when I came in in 92, of course, there were still Vietnam veterans. Uh, in the force, but m- many fewer. Um, and uh, and then when I was at Bragg, I think we had some Panama veterans. Um, but uh, but you really spanned um, sort of the Cold War, saw what that was, um, and then in the beginning, and, and even now as you serve post nine eleven veterans, uh, what was that like for you spanning those those different eras? Well, it, you know, it's interesting to to I, w- I was uh, I was born in Pittsburgh, and I'm a huge fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and. Um, I got to see the last game at Forbes Field. I saw many baseball games at Three Rivers Stadium, and last year I, I got to go to the new stadium for the first time. So you start to feel a little old when you see three <laughs> baseball stadiums. Um, I grew up uh, right. My dad left the army and uh, became a cop here in D.C. So I grew up right outside of Washington D.C. in Alexandria, Virginia, in a very, very military neighborhood. Matter of fact, I think my family at one time may have been the only people on the street that weren't technically an active duty military family. So um, very heavy military uh, influence in my childhood. Uh, World War II mentors that I worked for as a young kid, delivering newspapers and delivering furniture and upholstery companies. And it was really an interesting time to watch this this Vietnam War because all my senior enlisted um, uh, leadership in the military, probably up until, like you said, the 90s, were Vietnam vets and, and, and warriors. And they were they were led as I was, and you were by you know a, a officer corps who had no combat experience. And it's funny you ask that because we talked about this the other day, and what's going to happen now with you know the kind of the wind down, and you start to see the same thing historically that we saw before. And you know I think that led us to um, you know some major issues. Not that everybody has to be a combat veteran to be successful in the military, but I do think that it gives you a a, a much different perspective on the reality, the the, the garrison life's not always uh, what it's cracked up to be, and um, and it, it, the way leadership you know occurs. And I think you know I, I give a lot of talks today on PTSD and help a lot of post 9/11 veterans, and we also take in you know Vietnam vets. We just had two Vietnam vets come through our Warrior Path program here. But I tell people that 
You know, PTSD is as much of a leadership issue as it is a um, as it is a, a mental health issue. And and what I mean by that, and, and the Marine Corps have done some interesting studies on this, is that you know um, units that are led well tend to have a much lower suicide rate than those that aren't. And there there's a lot to be said, I think, for that. So you know, I just really hope that you know the new officers and the, uh, coming into the service. Uh, don't do necessarily what happened, you know, in the 80s and, and really allow these combat hardened veterans to, you know, to be the leaders that they uh, that they are and deserve to be. No, and I can uh, absolutely agree with that. And I think back even as you uh, began um, as a ceremonial guard, I, I served outside of Fort Meade, Maryland uh, for three years. And so I'm familiar with the area. I, I got to know uh, in the Army a lot of uh, tomb guards um, but also um, that experience that earlier in your career, even after having um, grown up with a certain reverence or appreciation, uh, that had to instill uh, solemnity, right? You know, I mean, just, just reverence. I mean, those are, those are ceremonial. Um, you know, of course, I can't go to Arlington without hair standing up on the back of your neck. Um, and, and so you were aware of the sacrifice um, very early on in your career. Yeah, the, the 1,400 funerals, a lot of funerals, and it's, um, I, I can't even count how many I've been to now, the, you know, the EOD community that I came out of, we've had 133 killed in action um, since 9-11, and, uh, and we're nearing that, that number in suicides, and, uh, and, and, you know, the funerals are just, you know, just horrendous. And, and so, and that's, a, you, after leaving uh, the military and still being involved in counterterrorism, um, you started a couple different things. The the EOD Foundation, I think it was correct. That's correct. Yep, I started. Uh, I ran a company called AT Solutions, which ended up growing to be you know pretty big. And um, and during the early days of AT Solutions, I had an employee that was just we had a little foundation inside our company that that did all our kind of philanthropic work, and we had an employee who just focused on wounded EOD warrior care and all the amputees that were getting medevac back here to Walter Reed and Bethesda hospitals. And then about 2007, we actually started the Wounded EOD Warrior Foundation. And then in four years ago, we merged it with an old legacy EOD foundation that provided scholarships to children and um, and really have now created this EOD Warrior Foundation. And I just came back uh, Sunday, actually, from our, our annual EOD weekend on the first Saturday of May is National EOD Day, uh, uh, Congressional Mandated National EOD Day. Also, it's our annual EOD Memorial where we place the names of those who have fallen in our career field um, onto this beautiful wall down at Eglin Air Force Base, which is the home of EOD School now. And, um, you know, this year was the first year since 9-11. We haven't put a post-9-11 name on that wall. We, we, we did put 12 names on there. We have some historians who are doing some really interesting work. So we have some we had two Navy SEALs who were also EOD qualified who uh, were killed in the invasion of Grenada. We had a couple of Vietnam vets and a bunch of World War II vets that went on to the memorial this year. So in, in, in touching base on that, and, and a lot of our uh, audience is military, but we also have some non-military uh, uh, mental health providers that want to understand and learn more about um, military and federal mental health. So uh, EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, um, it is a, a unique um, military occupation. Uh, I was uh, I was in the 82nd, and I always said that uh, um, uh, parachute riggers who join the military, knowing that they're going to be jumping out of the mili- uh, jumping out of an airplane for their entire career, you have to want to um, experience that, right? There, there's something about that. Uh, in in EOD, you are volunteering for an inherently dangerous. You know, it, there's no ambiguity, right? There's there's no. I mean, e- even if you're an infantryman. Um, you know, or, or a ground pounder, you may or may not be in situation. When you're EOD, it's dangerous all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's the only profession. You know, really, uh, I won't say that runs to gunfire because I think we all do that. You know, when the when the bullets start flying, but it's definitely the only profession that runs towards an IED and uh, uh, or an unexploded piece of ordnance on the bomb, uh, battlefield. And I don't mean run literally, but but. Um, but you know, it's it's a dangerous profession. It's I think in in in, in many cases, people say it's the most dangerous profession, but we all have our perspectives. You know, it's kind of what led me to write this book about this whole concept of training instead of therapy. And, you know, because we are, we become this this product of how we're trained. And one thing I love about 
the military and really miss about the military is the quality of training because we we do an amazing job and you see um you know soldiers all the time that are just so great at their jobs because they they're, they're trained and i think not everybody can make it through eod school we've proven that over the years but i think the ones that do are you know are very well trained and and, and don't look at it with the level of danger that many from the outside look at right and, and i've seen that with veterans that i work with is uh once you become more comfortable with that um you know i i talk about uh you know our doomsday clock our own personal doomsday clock being a little closer to midnight uh, than many others, um, you get comfortable with danger, you get comfortable with uh, taking risks. Um, and while that can be beneficial in some areas, that's not always that beneficial when when service members leave the military. No, it's, it's you know, that's, I mean, really, that's one of the, the big issues with PTSD, that hypervigilance, that, you know, hyper alert, all the things that keep us alive on the battlefield um, don't necessarily make for a great life you know, when the bullets aren't flying. And so you started with the uh, wounded EOD warrior um, and, and then um, talk to me a little bit about Boulder Crest. How did that come about um, and, and sort of what you do there? Yeah, so since about 2004, my best friend uh, was an Army EOD sergeant major. We had served together in the, at the EOD school. And um, he called me in 2004 and said, "Hey, I have a soldier who's lost his legs. You know, I know you're in D.C. I'm in Iraq. Would you would you meet uh, meet him and his family?" And we got to the hospital and there was no family there. And that's kind of was the genesis of the wounded EOD Warrior Foundation at the time. And we paid for this guy's mom. He had, he was, had a mom. He had no siblings. He had no father, but he had a mom. And she was struggling to figure out how to get to the hospital. She didn't have money. She had a dog who had to get into a kennel. And we paid for her to get to the hospital. And, for her dog to be in the kennels and those types of things. And, you know, as kind of a, uh, a veteran of the first Gulf War, you know, I, I think like everybody, I thought this thing would be over in three months and it would be the first and last, you know, EOD troop I saw laying in a bed with no legs. But unfortunately that wasn't the case. We've had about 225 severely injured EOD troops. Um, and that's, you know, amputations, blind burn. These are physical injuries. The, the invisible injuries are, are countless, I think, at this point. But the physical injuries were pretty substantial. And I sold my company in 2008. I ran it for a couple more years. And finally, I, I left in 2010. I was going to take a year off and just kind of do some things around the house. And I got bored and decided to go uh, do a master's degree at Georgetown. I, you know, as an enlisted guy, I did an undergrad degree, but it was at night school and I wanted to go, you know, somewhere and, and, and do a master's degree. So I did a degree in public policy with some kind of vision of maybe going back into the Pentagon and helping specifically with the wounded warrior issues at the time, because I was just so fed up with the way the, you know, the government was handling, you know, uh, these guys at the hospital, you know, the medics and the doctors were doing a great job, but the stuff that was happening with the families and, and, um, you know, the, the, the facilities at Walter Reed at the time and at, even at Bethesda at the time were, were horrendous. They've come so far, you know, to date. But I just thought, you know, maybe I could get back in the business of the government service and do something, you know, interesting again. And it just so happened that year I was at Georgetown was the worst year in Afghanistan. We had gone dismounted again in Afghanistan during the surge. And from about late 2010 to early 2013, um, and specifically over one 52 week period in that time, we had 71 EOD amputees in 52 weeks. So, you know, Georgetown University is on one end of Wisconsin Avenue and the hospital Bethesda is on the other end. And they were closing Walter Reed at this time. And I was going back and forth, like every four days I was meeting a new family. And most of these family members are my age, you know, the young guys and gals that were injured were in their early twenties, most of them. And we started bringing their families just to get them away from the hospital, give them a break um, uh, out to our home. And I've got a you know beautiful old country home in Virginia, about an hour west of the Beltway and, and an hour west of these two hospitals at the time. And uh, started bringing the families out. We started with day barbecues. We had a few families stay overnight, you know, with us and um, had one dad come out and spend a week out here deer hunting with me. I mean, it was just trip after trip. And, you know, what we know for sure is that you know, there's a large percentage, I think it's over 70% of the military comes from rural America. And then when these families come here to DC, it's, it's you know, beside the fact the hospital and their son and daughter laying in this bed is horrendous. It's, it's hard, you know, when you're not a city person to be here. And 
the average, you know, severely injured guys in inpatient uh, status for, you know, anywhere from three months to a year, depending on severities and of these injuries and infections and things. And then they outpatient for anywhere from one to three years. So these aren't short term stays by any means. And, um, and I came home one night from school at, at Georgetown and my wife and two of her friends were sitting at the dining room table drinking wine. And I thought, uh Oh, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm going to bed. So, uh, I said, good night, ladies. And they said, no, come here. We got a great idea. This place that I own has two, we had 200 acres and at the bottom of the property, um, is 37 acres of pastures and we used to call it the meadows and we would take our dogs down there we had some hopes and dreams one day of putting our own horses down there and uh, my wife said what do you think about donating the meadows and instead of people coming here to our house uh, not that we didn't love that but you know when people are in your house even if you say go to the fridge and get a beer they always feel awkward and um, she said rather than being in our house why don't we build a couple cabins down in the meadows and just let families come and stay there and I thought, well, that's a good idea. A couple cabins isn't much. And then they showed me this drawing that they had, which is pretty much what we've built. And early on, just because of my ties to the EOD community and the Navy SEAL community, we thought we'd open it up just for those communities. And, uh, you know, through a, a variety of reasons, one main reason being I sat in the hospital bed one night with a young infantry guy who had no family or siblings. And I just thought, there's no way we can just do this for anybody so we are eod and seal so we opened it up to all combat veterans and and built this beautiful facility here at boulder crest retreat and that's that's kind of how it all got started so and there's uh there, there's definitely a lot there that i'd like to unpack but but really to uh, validate from the other side what you saw i was in afghanistan and rc east uh in 2009 and 2010 uh and there exactly what you're talking about is we were starting to uh wind down in 2010 was when uh, IEDs really started cropping up in Afghanistan. Uh, in in uh, Kandahar and RC South, they were there, but where we were at in RC East, it wasn't big until our last three or four months. Uh, and of course, when IEDs come in, that's when EOD starts to come in uh, and do things like that. Um, I can uh, I can honestly say one moment of terror that I felt uh, in Afghanistan was when we started getting intel that. Uh, um, that uh, copper was starting to be um, introduced uh, and EFPs might be coming into Afghanistan. And I saw what that happened, what, what that did in Iraq. Uh, and, and so uh, that was a very different threat than what we were used to the most of that tour for direct action. Uh, and so we started seeing it when I was there on the ground too, um, coming in and starting to see that ramp up and then to know that that even increased after we left, um, that was significant. Uh, and then I'm hearing you saw a need, right? There's so many different times that, that, that you or anyone else could have um, intervened or not intervened. You started to notice a need. You were aware of the need um, with, with the work that you were doing. Um, you saw an opportunity. So a lot of people may see the need then have the opportunity, but maybe don't have the will or the resources that you had. And sort of all that came together. Um, for you to be able to provide this support at Boulder Crest Retreat. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's definitely it was a perfect storm, that's for sure. And we were, you know, we've been blessed. We, we were able to sell this company, and you know, we made some money. And and you just, you know, we didn't make it on our own. And, and you just, you just, I, you know, somebody said to me the other day, I said you easily could have just left and gone and retired and gone fishing or something. Right. I thought, what a miserable life. <laughs> it's like. Uh, you know, how, how can you, how can you not do that? I mean, it's, it's, or how could you do that? It's, it's, I don't know. I just, I sit there and I look at people, you know, today, even with the invisible injuries. And I just think, you know, we got to help. We, we got to help. And we got to do more and we do as much as we can. You know, I'm probably personally at capacity, but we're hoping to, you know, get other people motivated about what we're doing here and, and try to spread this around the country. And cause it's, it's pretty frustrating the way, uh, you know, the veterans are taken care of. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's just over and over again. You just, you just hope that you can do more and, and do better. So, and, and I think, in, and I can see even just hearing, you know, in this brief trajectory of your military career, growing up around World War II and, and Vietnam veterans and seeing that, uh, and Korean War veterans, and then very early on experiencing the reverence and the ceremonial aspect and, and taking care of troops. I mean, this is really something uh, that you've been doing since 81. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that when you saw the, the need there that you didn't step in and, and do what you could. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I, 
I know we're going to talk a little bit about my book earlier, but I talk a little bit in the book. I lost my mom to cancer, you know, when I was seven years old. And the last year um, she was in the hospital, she was in a coma. And I sat there by her bed, you know, with my grandmother. I talk about it in the book a little bit, you know, my, my grandmother brushing her hair, and just globs of hair, just, you know, coming out. And it's something you never forget as a kid. And then somebody said, you know, that's, that's probably what gave you the strength to sit next to these beds, um, you know, at the hospital when you're sat with these wounded guys. And, and not only did I sit with these, you know, a lot of wounded uh, uh, EOD guys and SEALs and Army Special Forces guys during the time, but um, I actually got hired in 2011 by the Pentagon to do some interviews to try to figure out what was going on, kind of a first-person perspective of their IED attacks. and. Uh, which nobody had done at the time. And I think I interviewed about 130 guys who had lost limbs to IEDs or, or been blinded or paralyzed or severely burned. And it really opened up my eyes. And, and you know, and, and those are a lot of sad stories to sit next to a bed and listen to. So at some stage in the game, I think, you know, you gather this strength. And, and, uh, and as I said earlier, you kind of become a sum of the training that you've had. And that's, that's, what, that's what life's all about to me. No, I, I can absolutely see that. And even the ideas you mentioned earlier, um, if we uh, we pull up and we see disturbed earth and and you know there's a HME or an IED uh, potentially buried, uh, me and my troops would pull back, right? We would pull off of that, and and those who are trained would move forward to that. And those are the EOD, um, and and in many ways you're doing the same thing. You're approaching the aftermath of those things willingly, moving forward where others may. And, and to to no no fault of their own, but not knowing how to deal with it or not being familiar with that would would naturally pull away and think, well, someone else is more qualified to handle this young man or young woman's uh, uh, injury or things like that. Where, uh, in many ways, um, you're still doing what you did when you were in the military. Yeah, no, I think it's you know this is the job of a senior NCO. I think to you know to take care of the troops and I, I just you just find this comfort zone in your life and and. Not that I, I don't mind getting outside my comfort zone, but I just I've, I've, I think I found what I'm good at at this point. Now, with uh, with Boulder Crest Retreat, and, and we hear many things about um, you know uh, uh, camping in the mountains, and not to not to be disrespectful to to many of the programs that are out there, um, but yours um, yours is focused on recovery. Um, there, you have some clinical advisors. Um, you, you have a, a wide range of individuals who are clinical mental health professionals. This is one of the things that I always try to uh, explain to people. If you're starting a program, um, especially if it's dealing with PTSD and veteran mental health, you need to ensure that mental health professionals are involved. Um, you can't just uh, take a veteran out to camp and say, okay, it's great. Um, so, so I, I guess talk a little bit about Boulder Crest's programs, um, and and it's non-clinical, but then it's clinically informed. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I think that's that's a, a fair assumption. I I I'll tell you just you know the quick story is in the first year that we had Boulder Crest open, we and remember we opened this place up in Virginia really for families to have respite from the hospital. That was the, that was the main mission of it, and then my wife and I had donated some money to some really interesting small organizations. And we, we kind of, in our minds, we had kind of classified small nonprofits as a million dollars a year in revenue or less. And, um, and we had donated some money to some really interesting groups. Uh, one of them is a program called Songwriting with Soldiers. And um, Songwriting with Soldiers uh, brings in these professional Nashville and Austin-based you know, songwriters and sit down with soldiers and listen to stories and turn their stories into the most amazing songs you've, you've you know, maybe ever heard uh, in a very short period of time. And there were no mental health professionals. It was just you know these hippie songwriters sitting around with soldiers and, and really creating these cool bonds and, and you know doing some amazing things. But it didn't last it, you know, what happens in these programs is, as you said that, you know, it's, I, I call a lot of them catch and release programs where they just bring yeah. veterans in, they go camping, they go hunting, they go fishing. And then it's, you know, they're back out on their own and they're back into life. And, um, and I don't, I don't say that about songwriting with soldiers specifically, because we do have a follow-up. I actually joined their board early on and we have a follow-up program, but there's a lot of programs that we did host here. Um, that you know brought with them a pretty interesting set of characters and maybe in you know no no complete disrespect maybe some wackos and um and we sat back and i kept thinking well this is kind of interesting you know some of these pro many of these programs are are are, are much alike 
the things that make them a little bit unique are the people. And I'd start asking questions like, well, can you scale this? Do you think we could, you know, we could do better? Do you think there's anything we could do in the way of lessons learned to help the mental health community? Because the average therapist out there, as you know, Dwayne, the average person out there doesn't get, other than their continuing educations, you know, they're not in this pipeline, you know, like uh, of, of research and development and what's the next greatest things, you know, they're trained in a technique and they go out and do their best to deliver that technique and they gather their experience over the years. But, you know, until you get to the PhD level and start doing some research, uh, you know, unless you're a real innovator, you know, that's, that's pretty much what happens on a daily basis. And that's kind of what we saw here. And, you know, maybe the unique feature was somebody was doing acupuncture and then, you know, half the guys would come out with their ears bleeding and pissed off and the other half would come out feeling good. And I'm like, well, that's not very cool. And, uh, and I just to back up a little bit, 1989, um, uh, I broke my back in a parachute jump down in Puerto Rico. And, um, and I, I got out, you know, of the hospital and I went to physical therapy and I had an E3. She must have been right out of hospital Corman school doing my physical therapy and you know god bless her but she just didn't have any experience and and you know i lay there on the table and i'd get up and they hook some electrodes to my back and she said all right chief you know here's another bottle of motrin 800 go kill your stomach again and you know you'd get up and walk out of these things and finally i borrowed a little money from my dad and i went to a chiropractor and in 1989 chiropractic treatment was like witch doctory so you know i've got a pretty open mind when it comes to alternative solutions because i credit you know, initially I was told I would never go back to active duty, and and uh, and I, I credit my healing and the rest of my successful career to you know to this chiropractic treatment and a lot of my own hard work. But you know, it gave me a whole different perspective on, on getting better. And um, and and at at some point in 2013, we just said, you know, I'm not going to have any other groups come in here unless you know they're solid. You know, I, I can't deal with this wacko stuff anymore. I'm afraid they're going to hurt people. Why don't we start to put our own program together? So I jumped on a plane and, and literally flew around the country. I went to Harvard, University of Chicago, University of San Francisco, out to Pathways Home out in Napa Valley, you know, the tragedy that you know occurred right. out there a few weeks ago or a few months ago now. And sat with Fred Guzman, the guy that founded Pathways Home, and, and some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists. And I would hear these things like you know, PTSD Center of Excellence I was at, and I would hear these things like, well, you know, the PTSD treatments don't really work, and we really wish we had something different. And, and I, I asked this one doctor in San Francisco, I said, if, if they don't, if PTSD treatments aren't working for you know, combat veterans, why do we keep doing them? And you'd hear things like, well, it's the only thing we have. Uh, it's the only thing that insurance reimburses for, you know, and, and we know that great therapists have great results, but, but the average therapist isn't great. Um, the average soldier doesn't put up with not great, so they walk out of the treatments. And if you don't get through the treatments, you're damn sure not going to get better. And I just, I finally said, said, you know, to this one doctor, I said, man, I said, that's just a terrible excuse. You know, I'm a bomb disposal guy. We, we just don't, I didn't grow up in a profession where you can continue to make mistakes. You know, we've got to do something about this. So I started seeking out some really meaningful people, Mary Jo Barrett up at the Center for Contextual Change in Chicago. And then I met Rich Tedeschi. I had researched, you know, positive psychology and, and post-traumatic growth. And I was very intrigued by post-traumatic growth. And I found Tedeschi down at UNC Charlotte. And, um, and I had read a lot of his research. And I said to, to Rich, I said, you know, I really get what you've done. And, and, and I don't know how familiar you are with, with post-traumatic growth, but Tedeschi's early work was was really working with bereaved parents, family, uh, families who had lost children to cancer. And um, and he would sit in these groups and he kept listening and watching the growth occur and, and, and creating these, you know, what he showed eventually in research is these outcomes of, of post-traumatic growth. You know, post-traumatic or a traumatic event occurs, time goes on, you know, grieving, healing, and then this growth opportunity. And um, and he started writing about it. And I said, you know, you're, I'm really intrigued by this. I said, have you ever done anything with um, with veterans? And he said, yeah, actually, a colleague, my colleague and I, um, his colleague was Lawrence Calhoun at the time at UNC, uh, studied prisoners of war from the Vietnam War. And he said, well, what? And I said, well, what did you find out? And he said, well, 30 percent of Vietnam era veterans came home with PTSD, which arguably, depending on the statistics you believe in, is, is true for our current generation. And he said, well, what do you think um, the percentage of POWs who came home with PTSD is? 
And I said, I don't know, 100%? You know, I'm thinking, I've been in combat, I've been to seer school, and I'm thinking, you know, what's worse than getting caught on the battlefield and captured and tortured, you know, let alone for a day, you know, by ISIS and then killed the next day or had your head chopped off, but 591 days, 10 years, I mean, some of the, you know, 591 men that, you know, walked out of prison camps and in Vietnam, and I, I said, it's got to be 100%. And he said, no. And I said, 50. And, you know, we kind of played that game. And he held up four fingers and said, no, 4%. And I said, well, how the hell do you, you know, account for that? And and the first thing he said to me was training. And I said, well, you know, and I had read when I was in SEER school and, and I had read some other stuff about Stockdale's leadership in these in these camps, or in, specifically in the Noy Hilton. And he said, you know, they had created a framework, they had trained each other, they had relied on each other, they, you know, kind of went through this whole kind of framework, stock, what today we call the Stockdale Paradox. And, and, um, and I said, I said, that's amazing. I said, do you think we could teach people how to achieve post-traumatic growth? And he said, you know, Ken, I'm not sure, but I'm all ears and I'm willing to help. And that's kind of what started our journey. And, and, um, and we created this Warrior Path program. You know, one of the one of the things we talked about a minute ago was this catch and release concept. I didn't want to do anything that was short term or short duration. So we we really looked hard at creating a military style training program. Uh, some people have referred to it as kind of a reverse boot camp kind of concept. Um, but most importantly was that we weren't going to catch and release, and that we would we would follow up with the men and women for eighteen months, which we felt was you know, it was long enough. We had read a lot on habitual change. You know, some people say it takes 21 days to create change. Other people say it takes up to a year. And we just thought, well, if it takes a year, let's add six months and we'll figure by 18 months, we'll hope that, you know, that our program is working well enough. And, uh, and to date, you know, the results are amazing. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of, not even in the middle now, we're at the end, 17 months into an 18 month longitudinal study. And, and the results we're getting in this program are, are, you know, far outpacing status quo. You know, yeah, and I, I really like that, uh, especially the hopefulness. Uh, a lot of veterans are, are told uh, that PTSD is a life sentence um, and that you have to just uh, accept and acknowledge uh, what your limitations are. Um, and you mentioned uh, positive psychology. Uh, at the end of my career, um, I was actually uh, trained as a, a, the Army's Master Resilience Training um, so I went to UPenn uh, and studied uh, or, or went through their training um, under Dr. Karen Rivich and Martin Seligman. Uh, and so very familiar with um, uh, Dr. Tedeschi or Tedeschi and Calhoun in, in the post-traumatic growth. Um, actually uh, written about it a couple times on the blog, uh, one of them through the other side of the Valley of Death. Um, and I'll make sure that that links in the show notes. But but post-traumatic growth is a, a less often discussed outcome of experiencing trauma or experiencing stress. Um, can you maybe uh, give a little bit of, of your understanding of what post-traumatic growth is? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, you know, a big believer in the concept. So, so let's look, I mean, let's go all the way forward and look at kind of some of the outcomes of, of post-traumatic growth. And that's really, um, really identified in five ways in the framework. The first one is kind of new opportunities or possibilities in our life that hope we talked about. I held a conference for the EOD Warrior Foundation. I, I mentioned that we had, we've had almost as many suicides, if not maybe even more than we've had KIA since 9-11, uh, including 206s, two fairly senior officers. Um, uh, and I held a conference here at Boulder Crest Retreat just for the EOD community and brought in like, all these top you know, experts in suicide, which, you know, I'm not really sure truthfully what that means. But what I, I think what I walked out of after a two day conference was that suicide is really a disease of hopelessness. So if, if we're not creating hope and new possibilities in people's lives, what we're going to do is, is doomed to fail, right? Because that's, that's what leads us down this road. So the first, you know, outcome of post-traumatic growth is creating this hope, these new opportunities. And what are these new possibilities? Uh, the next one is the increased sense of personal strength. You know, I tell people that, you know, the military is, is the epitome of post-traumatic growth, right? You come into boot camp, we shave your head, we take everything away from you, and we turn you in, you know, from a civilian to a, to a soldier or to a sailor, an airman or a Marine. That's a big deal. What we do in a very short period of time to, to transform a human being in the military is, is a big deal. 
And we create this strength. And, and not that PTSD is a weakness by any means, but how do you how do you get back to that feeling? And that's what I tell these young guys when I come through. I said, remember this military bearing. When I'm talking about military bearing, I, I tell them, I don't care about your long hair and your beards and your earrings. And if you're smoking a little dope, that stuff doesn't bother me. But don't forget what made you, you know, the man you are. And I tell everybody today, I mean, my dad, my grandfather, my mentors, and the U.S. Navy made me the man I am. And, and, and you can't forget that. And how do you increase that sense of personal strength and what's the outcome of that, you know, during a program? The other thing is a change in relationships. You know, we're humans. We thrive on relationships. You come home as a veteran and you hate everybody and hate yourself. It's because you hate yourself, not because you hate other people. The way to get through life is, is to have meaning and positive relationships. So how do we create these positive ones? And sometimes it's hard, right? It's getting these toxic people out of our life, family members and friends. And it's, it's not always easy to do that. Uh, the next one is just a sense of greater appreciation for life in general terms. You know, do you, do you really appreciate life and, and what's, what's happening with, with your life? And then the last one is this kind of deepening of a spiritual life. And, and I'm not a religious man by any means, but, um, but I think at the end of the day, if you don't believe in something bigger than yourself, um, that, that ego is going to drive you to a, to a bad place. So that's kind of the outcomes of post-traumatic growth. And then what we found and, and what Tedeschi worked with us on is how do you create that through teachings? And the first thing, very similar to what you, know, what you do as a counselor and others do it, as therapists, is education, this whole concept of psychoeducation. What's going on in your body? Why are you in this state that you're, at, that you're in? And to really educate the, you know, the, the, the details of what symptoms of PTSD are, how it's treated, what certain drugs may do and may not do for you, why sleep is so important and nutrition and exercise and all this stuff. But this whole education pr process the next thing is regulation. And we tell everybody, if, if you can't self-regulate, you self-medicate. And, and once you go down that road, it's, it's, it gets to be almost impossible to get out of. I mean, we have over a 90% recidivism rate in alcohol and drug rehab. We spend billions of dollars a year in alcohol and drug rehab. And, and, and if you're in that situation, you know, it's, it, talk about a life sentence. I mean, the chance of getting better is 10%. So once you go down that road and you get severely addicted, and listen, I've sat on my couch here at Boulder Crest Retreat with a young Marine who was a hell of a Marine, Bronze Star, two Purple Hearts, detoxing on heroin. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. So, you know, for me, is 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 this this medication problem that we have in the mental health world is something we've got to get our hands around. So self-regulation is the next kind of phase of, of PTG teachings. Uh, the next one is disclosure. And, and uh, as you know, as a counselor, you know, we bring many of us bring a lot of baggage into the military with us. This stuff starts at childhood. We become the sum. Right. So what I've learned is that we can't just focus on the combat experience because most of the time as a veteran or as a combat soldier, that's where we thrive. And, and those although those those things are sad, they're meaningful, they leave marks, they, they leave nightmares. Um, Part of the reason that, that we can't go beyond that is because we've already had a, a rucksack full of trauma that we carried into the military. You know, adverse childhood experiences, sexual trauma, physical abuse, poverty, the things that the soldier joined, joined, joined the military for to get away from. And all that stuff has to be disclosed. It's got to come off your chest. And, uh, you know, the shame, the guilt, the, the, the labels, uh, those types of things. And then the next phase of PTG is just creating this new story. You know, what is it? You know, as, as some people say, live in the dash, right? We're, we're very proud when we die to put our birth dates and our death dates on our tombstone. But this dash where we live our lives is so important. So we work with guys to create stories about the new man that they want to be or the new woman that they want to be. In. And how do you get from where you are today to be that person? Um, because, you know, I mean, there might be one or two in the audience, but very few, few, few people in life want to be known as an asshole. And, uh, and that's what we find when we create these new stories. And how do you how do you implement that in your life when, in the way of setting goals and achieving those goals? And then the last way is, is service. And, uh, uh, and, and specifically, we talk about service to others because that's that's very important. Again, you know, when we measure spirituality at Boulder Crest Retreat in our Warrior Path program, we talk about three things, your character, your um, ability to create positive relationships in your life, 
and service to others. And that's really what spirituality to, to us is. And, 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 and if in there you believe in a God, if you believe in, you know, anything else, uh, uh, you know, God bless you and good for you. But at the end of the day, those are the three core principles of what, you know, define the spirituality and service is just so important. And again, many of us join, they call it the military service for a reason. Many of us join to serve, serve a nation, serve something bigger than ourselves. And if you come home from war and you're not serving anybody but yourself, and especially in a negative way, it becomes very difficult. So those are the five kind of phases and teachings of post-traumatic growth. It's not a, as Tedeschi always reminds us, it's not a mechanistic process, you know, education, regulation, disclosure, new story, service. All this stuff is kind of interwoven. There's education throughout it. You always have to self-regulate. You know, those are the kind of things that happen. So that's really what PTG is all about. See, and I think that's critical for a lot of veterans, especially the ones that I see, is when I start to talk to them about uh, post-traumatic growth, uh, they've never heard about it before. They've they've never been told that there is another option or that there's another um, uh, potential uh, outcome from their traumatic experiences. As you said, not just uh, their, their military traumatic experiences or even before how you talked about uh, leadership and PTSD, uh, a toxic leadership can develop uh, these different things separate from PTSD, um, but just uh, emotional depression, anxiety, and things like that. Um, but when I talk to veterans about post-traumatic growth, they're, they're like, there's this new concept. They're, they're sitting there, um, you know, in the thorn bushes at the bottom of the hill, you know, beaten and bloody. And, and they think that that's, this is it. This is the rest of my life until someone is able to come along and say, but this is how you can get to the path um, to live that post-military life that you desire. So it, that's really great. I really appreciate you uh, laying that out like that. Yeah, and I appreciate you working it into your 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 your, your uh, sessions too, Dwayne. Because Brett, Doctor Brett Moore, who's on our wellness advisory uh, committee, is a, 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 a former Army psychologist. He was embedded. I think I think he was embedded in Iraq longer than any other psychologist. Uh, one of the first guys during the embedded mental health uh, 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 testing that they did over in Iraq. And he's, Brett was telling me he was interviewing a soldier one day and, you know, they were going through what had happened on the battlefield, the, you know, the death, the destruction and all that. And, and, uh, and the soldier looked up at him and said, Doc, every time I talk to you, all you want to know about is what's the bad things. He goes, I kind of think something good's happening out of this. And he said, well, what do you mean? And that's what led Brett, Brett Moore to Dr. Tedeschi because Brett saw, saw it firsthand with growth. And that's one of the things, you know, somebody asked me the other day, well, how the hell do you scale warrior path. There's no way we can put everybody through warrior path. And we understand that. We know it. But what we can do is help get these teachings of post-traumatic growth out. Because the minute, if you're in a, a prolonged exposure session or CPT or CBT process, and you start to talk about growth and new possibilities, it can take that process, you know, that, that, that traditional treatment and really add, you know, add, add the juice to it to, 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 to get people motivated and energized and that's that's where the real success occurs and that's one of the ways we hope to to be able to help is to just start teaching you know the the concepts of post-traumatic growth out and around this community well and that's uh in in exactly what you were talking about before it, it not being a mechanistic um uh, situation where we have our protocols for cpt or cbt or things like that uh, but much of what dr tedeschi and and, and selig men um, it, but even going back to, to Irvin Yalom is a lot of it has the purpose and meaning aspect, the existential aspect um, laid on top of these things um, can can really help. Uh, and then you said really trying to get the word out. Um, and as we wrap up here, that's that's really what the book is about. You know, as uh, um, as when we record this, um, your book, Struggle Well, um, has been out for a couple of weeks now. Um, by the time we we air this, it'll actually be a couple of months um, and, and to me, that seems like your way of trying to get this out into the community, get these, these, uh, these, these tenets, these aspects of post-traumatic growth uh, out into the wider veteran community and clinical community. Yeah, no, that's a great assessment. I mean, I think what we're, you know, we get asked this question a lot because our, we're starting to publish our results of our 18-month study, and we'll get asked these questions. Well, do you think this would work for civilians? And we're like, well, absolutely. And People ask us, well, how we how do we know that? And one is we've put civilians through our program, uh, some first responders, an NFL football player, and a lot, although they're not true civilians in my eyes, uh, a lot of military um, spouses. Um, and 
what we what we said was how do you get this word out to a bigger and broader audience in a short period of time so we spent the last year i mean really spent the last four years but the last year hard at writing the book and uh it's called struggle well thriving in the aftermath of trauma um it, it really was written with this concept of of trying to you know there just seems like there's a funk in the united states i mean i you know we have 20 veterans a day that take their own lives and it was 20 veterans last year, you know, a couple of years ago it was 20 and the year before it was 20. And I'm like, that number should be going down. If what we were doing was right, it should be going down. Suicide in general terms, 123 a day on average, suicide in general terms is the only cause of death in the United States that's on the rise. Opioid addiction. We kept thinking, well, you know, this country seemed to be in a bit of a funk. What can we do? as leaders maybe in the space to kind of help share the word. So for my civilian friends that are listening, don't, don't be turned off by the strong soldier on the front cover of our book. Um, uh, it's, it's for everybody and we really do hope it helps. And we've got a website and contact information, strugglewell.com. If you want to get hold of Josh or I, we, I co-authored the book with Josh Goldberg is a good, great friend of mine and kind of my right hand man here at Bouldercrest. So, um, Anything we can do to help, you know, and that's all we're trying to do is help. So anything we can do to help, please reach out to us. And I, and I think it's uh, it's critically important. It's exactly what you were talking about is, um, you know, if we're focusing on veterans. But what I've seen uh, in, in my work over the last three or four years, um, that, that if we can figure out a solution for veterans, we can then apply that to, to non-veterans, uh, not just in the mental health space, but in the homelessness space. Uh, I did a lot of work in that uh, a couple years ago, that if we can figure out how to, you know, not solve veterans homeless, but make an impact on veteran homelessness, we can then extrapolate that to other populations. Um, and the same thing here, post-traumatic growth was not something that was designed uh, specifically, um, you know, even as you were talking about with uh, Dr. Tedeschi, um, it, the the veteran um uh, the applications for veterans emerged out of his studies. Uh, same thing with Seligman and, and what he was doing with positive psychology is the impact on veterans uh, emerged out of something that was already working for civilians. And so I think it's, and, and, and as we all know, you know, um, military service is a microcosm of our nation. Um, you know, there's, we, we have uh, people from all walks of life, socioeconomic status, um, as you said, rural uh, primarily, but also, uh, it, so I think that, it really, it really can be, this is what works here, and this is also what can work uh, elsewhere. So I really appreciate, especially bringing that out, that this isn't just a veteran book that veterans need to read. Uh, any more than Tribe, Sebastian Younger's book Tribe, is not just a veteran book for veterans, um, or, or even, you know, to a much lesser extent mine, um, you know, is not specifically just for veterans. Um, Anybody can, if they want to understand more about veteran mental health and how to help veterans, um, that it can really be applied in uh, across the broad range of society. Yeah, absolutely. I think because you know the, the the thing we've got to quit doing, I think, in this space is labeling people. I think people need to educate. You know, the more wisdom you can create um, in your life and and for yourself, um, you know, the better the better you'll be and the better life you'll live. You know, my favorite book. Uh, at least up until the one I just wrote was, uh, I'm just joking, uh, was Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I think Absolutely. that, you know, we talk about existential change and asking these questions, you know, and, and, you know, two very important questions that kind of take you down one path or the other is, is, is the question of why, you know, which Frankl talks about, you know, questioning everything, really fully understanding what's going on. Don't let a doctor just give you medications after medication. Um, you know, understand what's going on and ask the question why and get, and get away from this victimhood. As, as, as Secretary Mattis says, you know, victimhood is exalted in this country and veterans should not become a part of it. And, and that question is why me? You know, you, you think it's a black cloud following you. You know, I can almost guarantee you that black cloud is because you've, you've created it. And, uh, and, and, and that's what ha has to happen. And, you know, the last thing I'll say, Dwayne, I, I stand in front of a lot of post 9-11 veterans and I tell them all the time, you're at a fork in the road where you either become the most entitled generation or the next greatest generation. And how that occurs is really up to you guys and, and, uh, and, and not up to me. We can help train and we can do it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I firmly believe life is a choice and all these choices that are made are, 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 are nobody's fault, you know, but your own. So, you know, there, there's people out here to help. And, and if you don't ask for that help, it's just not going to work. So 
let's work together to create the next greatest generation. That's that's really what we're all about. No, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, <laughs> considering the fact that I have written and, and speak about uh, much of the same thing um, about the fact that uh, there is a group of veterans um, who seem to have transitioned uh, in spite of what they experienced, um, and that they're uh, you know surviving it and even thriving. Uh, and then another group of, uh, of veterans of our current era who are not. And, and so I explain it as um, uh, we're, we're having two groups, one being the lost generation of post-World War I, uh, and the next we do have the potential to be this century's greatest generation. So uh, I really appreciate that you brought that out. You know, I, I knew that uh, when we started talking, we could probably uh, do this all day. Um, but, uh, but, but to be able to bring it to a close, um, I'll definitely make sure that, uh, the link to the book and of course, Boulder Crest, um, is in the show notes. Uh, but, uh, if people want to reach out to you, maybe there's some social media or anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm wide open on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, not that great on Twitter, but LinkedIn and, and, and Facebook. And, um, I'm, I'm pretty accessible as Ken Falk, F-A-L-K-E. And uh, my email address is simply Ken at strugglewell.com. And, and like I said, you can get to us through the, through the website as well. All right. Like I said, I'll make sure that all of those uh, contacts are in the show notes and, uh, and that people can follow up and see what you're doing. Uh, we didn't even get to the fact that uh, you're opening up another uh, or, or have another uh, retreat here in Arizona um, in the, the western uh, part of the country, right? Yeah, we got a great big grant from the Clark family here in D.C. last year. And we bought a beautiful ranch uh, just south of Tucson, Arizona between Tucson and Fort Huachuca in a small town called Sonoida. And we're up and running. Uh, we'll probably be up and running fully next year, but, uh, but we are up and running. We're running warrior path programs there now and, uh, and some other smaller, smaller retreats. So if anybody's in need and anybody's listening that, that, that needs a program, please reach out to Boulder Crest uh, retreat and we'll get you through the, uh, the intake process. Yeah. We'll have to find you some, uh, real estate in the Rockies. Then, uh, then you can yeah. really get things going. But, uh, <laughs> Well, I appreciate it, Ken. Uh, I really appreciate taking the time to talk today. All right, Dwayne. Thanks for everything you're doing, man. You're doing a great job. Appreciate it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. It was really great that Kim was able to make the time to come on the show. As I mentioned, I've been seeing and hearing the great stuff that Boulder Crest Retreat has been doing, and I've been very impressed. Ken demonstrates that you don't have to be a mental health professional in order to engage and support veteran mental health. On the contrary, it was his lived experience, his military leadership, and his compassion for his fellow veterans that led him to do something to make an impact. He didn't just go out and do it on his own, however. He did seek out and get support from mental health professionals across the country, as he mentioned in the conversation. One of the key things that I hope you took away from our conversation is that combat or traumatic exposure does not automatically doom a service member to a life of anguish and pain. Improvement and growth is a critical component to anyone's life, and just because we've been through flood and fire doesn't mean that we're going to drown and burn. We, veterans, have the capacity to be as much and even more than we were when we were in the service. The outcomes of post-traumatic growth that Ken mentioned are critical. I've seen it in the clients that I work with in therapy, and I've even experienced it myself. New opportunities in our post-military life, an increased sense of personal support, a positive change in our relationships, definitely a greater appreciation for life, and absolutely a deepening in spiritual life. Ken said that he's not very religious, and you don't have to be, as he mentioned. I do happen to me, and we may talk about that in a future episode, but spiritual fitness is as important as mental, emotional, and physical fitness. Post-traumatic growth is very much a path to get balance in each of these things. Don't forget, for the last couple months, I've been giving away free books to organizations that partner directly with veterans. This month's partner is Operation TBI Freedom, a nonprofit in Colorado Springs that provides peer support and case management with veterans who have experienced traumatic brain injury. If you want to learn more about the organization, go to veteranmentalhealth forward slash organization. If you want to support their work with veterans, head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash combat vet book and pick up a copy. Also over the past couple months, we've been telling you about some of the things we're trying to do to spread the word about veteran mental health and wellness, and we're trying to get this information out to you as much as we can. Start to develop content for your Echo device, and we've got some good stuff in there and more on the way. You can get a daily update about veteran mental health, explore different concepts around it, and now the entire Change Your POV podcast network catalog, nearly 500 episodes, can be found on your smart speaker. 
and the latest addition to the group is a skill that you can use as a companion to the latest Change Your POV podcast book, Motivation Monday, Volume 1. To see them all and more to come, check out veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash skills. And finally, thanks to this week's sponsors, HostGator. If you have an idea of a great website but don't have the tech skills to pull it off, you don't have to let the idea go. Check out HostGator to get it out of your head and in front of the audience you want to reach. You can find out more about them and all the things that help us do what we do at changeyourpov.com forward slash resources. Make sure to tune in next week to listen to a conversation that's near and dear to my heart, the intersection between veteran mental health and one of the challenges that veterans face after leaving the military, involvement in the criminal justice system. I have a conversation with defense attorney Kevin Snyder about veteran courts and how they're changing the lives of veterans across the nation. Here's a quick preview. The goal of the court is to, in the end, uh, help rehabilitate the veteran and have them succeed moving forward. In order to do that, uh, veteran uh, treatment courts will provide some incentives such as reduction in offenses or there, there could be a, an early exp- expungement or a dismissal of charges so that uh, the incident, the criminal case doesn't hang over the veteran's head and disadvantage them um, you know, the rest of their life. And, and the idea is uh, because of their service, uh, they have gotten to this point in their life that has led to an offense. And if we're able to address some of their needs as a result of their service, then they're less likely to reoffend. So there you have it. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. And until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
love you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.